This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit AmericanVision.org to purchase this book. The title of this book is The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, an Ethical Judicial History of American Slavery and Racism by Dr. Joel McDermott, narrated by Joe Salant. Copyright 2017, published by American Vision. Chapter 4, The Antebellum Setup. The Antebellum Era, roughly 1800 to 1861, breaks down naturally into two halves, each of which are as crucially important to the history of slavery and racism as the other. The second half features the more well-known fireworks at the national level that explode into the Civil War. The first half, however, using the same analogy, could be said to be a long process of accumulating powder and charges, running out of places to store them, and fearing someone would walk by with a random match. Some of the political developments at the national level that occur even in this first half we will discuss in the next chapter. In this chapter, we will focus on the volatile material of the slave society, slave culture, and economy of slavery, and how these became a hazardous slave power, which would grow feverishly on the local, state, and national levels. Along the way, we will see how the lust for power, wealth, and dominion through slavery further ground slaves and blacks in general into degradation, oppression, poverty, and death. This agenda, however, could not last forever without calling down judgment upon its head. Anti-slavery sentiment would grow but not fast enough to at first threaten the slave power, largely because most emancipation efforts rested upon assumptions that were as racist and derogatory to blacks as the slavery they opposed. Revolutionary sentiment had led some to develop a hatred of the institution of slavery, but few yet truly applied created equal to blacks as individuals, as a host of black codes in the North attested, even though their blacks were in general now free. It would take the further shock of seeing exactly what the slave power was truly capable of before revulsion could provoke further progress. Until the atrocities threatened to invade even northern backyards, as we will see in the next chapter, the slave power continued consuming. Just what that entailed is the subject of this chapter. And to get the fullest picture possible of why judgment would inevitably come, we need a more up-close and personal experience as well. Expansion of the Slave Power The Jinn and the King After the colonies won their independence from Britain and George III, they elected to exclude monarchs and all titles of nobility with their new national constitution. 
a monarch nevertheless eventually arose anyway. A king known today by the scientific name of Gossipium Hirsutum, or more commonly, King Cotton. While we traditionally associate cotton with southern slavery, widespread cotton production arose only after an innovation in the 1790s. In Virginia, cotton never rose to anywhere near the level of importance of tobacco or grain. In Carolina, rice dominated the market. Cotton did not feature for a long time, and even when it first did, it fell far behind even tobacco and other crops there as well. In the 1740s, plantation Harris Eliza Lucas had developed successful strains of indigo and soon helped South Carolina become a world-class supplier. The dye-producing plant soon became the colony's second most important crop within only a few years. Cotton constituted only a small part, but was destined to become the rising prince of the South. What cotton Carolina plantations originally produced came from a strain imported from Barbados, thus later called Gossipium barbadense. While the strain produced high-quality, long-staple cotton, it could grow well only in the coastal lowlands. Until demand would raise prices, cotton would have a difficult time competing with rice for this precious real estate. Another common strain of cotton had come from Mexico, grew well in the uplands, but had shorter, lower-quality fibers and contained many seeds, making harvesting and processing much more difficult. Until forces would work to drive higher demand and thus higher prices to cover the additional labor, planters had little incentive to push upland with this strain, hirsutum or short-staple cotton. Demand finally began to rise with the opening of the first textile mills in New England in the late 1780s, spurred by a series of innovations at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. The rise of the factories quickened demand for raw material, and the desire on their part to keep prices as low as possible created an incentive to find a way to de-seed the rough stuff. In 1793, a 28-year-old Massachusetts boy arrived in Georgia just in time to try out a new contraption he had just made, a cotton gin. Young Eli Whitney probably had little idea what a monster of unintended consequences his invention would unleash. While we generally understand the technological advances decrease the need for labor. They often open new markets, expand markets, and thus create new demands for labor. In the case of Whitney's cotton gin, 
the advance opened a vast new geographic area to a whole new series of plantations that nevertheless demanded the same old source of labor, slaves. Planters could now more affordably harvest and process short staple cotton upland. The demand in New England and Britain continued to rise, and new plantations now raced to meet it. Between 1793 and 1850, annual cotton production in the U.S. increased a thousandfold, from 3,000 to almost 3 million bales. Consequently, the demand for slaves, which had for some time plateaued and begun to languish, ballooned over the next several decades once again. Upland cotton production ramped up almost immediately afterward in the central and western Carolinas and Georgia, which had already joined the Union of States. Over the subsequent decades, cotton spread as fast as Southerners could admit states into the Union. Faster, actually. Planters rushed into newly opened territory, ensuring that King Cotton with his slaves would dominate Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and western Tennessee. All by 1820. By 1836, Arkansas would, would join the Cotton Kingdom. Then Texas by 1845. By the eve of the Civil War, the United States exported more cotton than all other American exports put together. It comprised such a dominant portion of the economy that, when tensions began to reach ahead in 1858, South Carolina Senator, former Governor, James Henry Hammond, openly bragged on the Senate floor that no nation would dare oppose the South, even if she seceded. Without firing a gun, without drawing a sword, should they make war on us, we could bring the whole world to our feet. England would topple headlong and carry the whole civilized world with her, save the South. No, you dare not make war on cotton. No power on earth dares to make war upon it. Cotton is king, bragged Hammond. King Cotton became not only a political catchphrase, but also a theory upon which Southern leaders willing stake everything. Far from mere political bluster on the Senate floor, the entire Southern establishment shared Hammond's braggadocio, so strongly it formed one of the foundational elements in their confidence to secede when the time came. King Cotton honestly believed he had not only his northern brother, but the whole world subjugated beneath his white feet. But almost as soon as he seceded, he would learn just how tenuous that rule truly was. The economic reality, nevertheless, was strong and real for decades, and it was tied directly to the slave labor wherever it went. As it developed steadily over the decades, it paralleled the growth of a national legislative contest over the control of national power, which always centered on the protection of slavery. 
The ever-expanding cotton kingdom demanded an equally expanding labor force. How the South would supply that force makes up one of the darkest chapters in American history. The Slave Breeding Industry One word best describes the outlook of Southern slavery in the early 19th century America. Expansion Territory expanded, plantations spread, agriculture increased, and at the base of it all, the slave supply had to expand to meet the demand. Historically in America, the supply of slaves derived from one of two main sources. The transatlantic trade, based mainly in kidnapped Africans, and what American slave owners had come to call a natural increase, or the number of slaves born naturally to the now native African American population. One of the darkest sides of the tale begins when slave owners recognize that with the offspring of black slaves legally defined as perpetual slaves themselves, they could exploit this natural production just as they would calves or foals. The modes of production and best practices were developed and soon worked to turn that recognition into full-blown slave supply systems. Before long, the phrase breeding females was part of common usage. Conscious attempts at slave breeding appeared in America nearly concurrent with slavery itself. Boston plantation owner Samuel Maverick attempted as early as 1639 to coerce a female slave to submit to impregnation by a male slave he selected. She resisted vehemently, and while the account does not clearly say that the deed never occurred, it does seem that she prevailed. We should quickly clarify that by slave breeding, we do not refer to the largely mythical stud farms where slave owners allegedly did nothing else mate choice male stock with select slave women and harvest crops of slave babies. Even the most thorough studies of the domestic trade and slave breeding admit that no such plantations existed, though a few isolated masters apparently tried. That is not the point. Although within their available natural parameters, slave owners did sometimes try to force mate slaves for genetic advantages, we will address the sexual exploitation of slaves later. Instead, we refer to the conscious practice on a regular everyday plantations of exploiting healthy women of breeding age for producing offspring that would by law be enslaved and owned by the master, and thus in addition to his capital, certainly, every infant and child slave met an expanse to the owner for a few years, but every farm where the enslaved had children was a slave breeding farm by definition, if only because every newborn slave child increased the estate's net worth. 
in a majority of cases, this probably evolved through the natural coupling of slaves themselves. Yet there were many cases of forced mating as well, sometimes between slaves and other times between master or a master's sons or relative and a slave. Recall that even in such cases, the offspring was legally a slave and still property. As one former slave woman recalled, In slavery, niggers and mules was white folks living. She said her master would sell his own children by slave women, just like he would any others, just since he was making money. My mother sold for $1,000. Every master who applied business sense to this reality toward his bottom line was, to whatever degree he did so, engaging in conscious slave breeding. The practice grew so wide and common that we need not go far, nor scrape the gutters of society to find even surprising examples. Thomas Jefferson made multiple sales of slaves, sometimes expressing his need to service debts, at other times simply revealing the profitability of it, including of maintaining female slaves, specifically as breeders. His letters disclosed such sales as early as 1792. Later in life, he would write candidly about his preferences for breeding females the death of five little ones in four years induces me to fear that the overseers do not permit the women to devote as much time as is necessary to the care of their children that they view their labor as the first object and their raising their child as but secondary. I consider the labor of a breeding woman as no object and that a child raised every two years as of more profit than the crop of the best laboring man. In this, as in all other cases, providence has made our interests and our duties coincide perfectly. With respect, therefore, to our women and their children, I must pray you to inculcate upon our overseers that it is not their labor but their increase, which is the first consideration with us, said Jefferson. Again, the very next year, I know no error more consuming to an estate than that of stocking farms with men almost exclusively. I consider a woman who brings a child every two years as more profitable than the best man of the farm. What she produces is an addition to the capital, said Jefferson. Nor was Jefferson without guile when he urged national abolition of the transatlantic trade as president in 1807. Though pronounced in terms of ending violation of human rights, Jefferson almost certainly had ulterior motives. He and his wealthy supporters had deep investments tied up in their bulging slave population, a problem for which the average white 
fearful of both competition for labor and slave rebellions, and money-motivated elites alike, found a solution in the expansionism of Jefferson's Louisiana Purchase. From that 1803 Executive Act, which many viewed as an overreach of power, until Louisiana statehood in 1812, this massive new territory fell largely under control of the executive and his friends in the slave power, and thus was effectively a colony of Virginia. Jefferson asked Congress for, and got, monopolistic commercial restrictions on the slave trade into Louisiana. Importation in Louisiana from outside the United States was prohibited, but importation into Louisiana of slaves from within the United States was allowed. This would simply mean a boon for the domestic trade of slaves, dominated by Virginia. A desire of that state, transparent at least since the Constitutional Convention. In short, ending the African slave trade was protectionism on behalf of Virginia. Nor did Jefferson's language of humanitarianism fool many at the time. As soon as news of the purchase reached South Carolina's legislators, they leapt to reopen their own ports to transatlantic imports, knowing the 1808 closure loomed and Jefferson would take full advantage. When that date approached, the greatest suffering fell, as usual, to the human chattel. In a frenzy of last-minute stocking up during the last legal year, in 1807, South Carolina merchants imported the highest one-volume year of Africans in the history of the North American trade, with the result that the market became glutted and captives from diverse parts of Africa died on Gadsden's Wharf awaiting sale. Volume had picked up even a few years prior with mortality rates to match. In April of that year, Charleston's Courier reported on the dead body of an African woman found floating in the harbor and lamented the horror that white folk might possibly eat fish fattened on the carcasses of dead Negroes. During the final four months of that year alone, ships brought over 16,000 new slaves. Over 700 died from dysentery and disease while stuck on board the docked ships. A similar number warehoused near the wharf froze to death during the winter months. In terms of the domestic slave trade, these atrocities marked only the beginning of sorrows, which began to spike from the monumental date of January 1, 1808. Beginning in the 1760s, northerners and upper south states alike availed themselves of the convenience of selling slaves down the river. Given that Virginia had both strong desires and large surplus, the domestic trade would probably have continued to thrive anyway. But the 1808 stricture vaulted prices and incentivized sales. At the same time, the transatlantic traders merely adapted themselves as domestic traders, facilitators, and agents. 
where they before organized ships full of hundreds of slaves to port. Now they would create a vast network among sellers and buyers and arrange the marching of groups of slaves southward and westward by the scores and even hundreds at a time. One contemporary Episcopal clergyman told the story emphasizing necessity at home, which may have been very well the case in many circumstances. The improvident manner in which the old Virginia proprietors wasted their lands with the soil-consuming tobacco has impoverished half of their descendants. The present proprietors, unable to maintain their aristocratic estate, part one after another with their family servants, whose price goes to maintain what the wretched crops ought to do, or they leave their barren heritages with their servants seek the south or west, and there buying new land at a government price build up a new, young Virginia family in Texas, Alabama, or Mississippi. So necessary is the annual decimation of slaves by sale to support these old, decayed families that it has become a settled trade for men whose occupation is to buy slaves to travel through the old dominion from a state to a state to purchase the Negroes that the necessities of those genteel families who have nothing left of their ancestral glory but the old mansion half in ruins and the wide barren fields scarcely yielding bread compel them to dispose of whenever opportunity offers. The slave buyer is seldom disappointed, however grand the exterior of the baronial-looking house to which he rides up. Here he gets one, there another, and in a few weeks he enters Lynchburg, Alexandria, or Richmond with a hundred or more, whom the necessities of the first families have compelled to be sold. Hundreds of such buyers are ever traversing the state, with the markets of the South and West, are almost wholly supplied with slaves. Through the rest, Augusta Domi, tight circumstances at home in the Old Dominion. Other prominent men, openly admitted to the breeding and selling of slaves as a source of income, but emphasize this angle of necessity, the fierce advocate Edmund Ruffin disagreed with the general opinion that doing so provided a source of profit. He argued that without increased production, which would entail expanding land or territory, individual farms could not keep up with the natural increase of the slave population on his plantation. As slaves consumed food faster than the farm could produce, such an owner may be said to be a slave to his own slaves, in which case the consequence must be that some of them will be sold. However sincere Ruffin may originally have been at the time, his few comments on slave breeding were edited out of his later 1852 edition altogether, despite it having otherwise grown by 200 pages. His later crusades with the radical pro-slavery fire-eaters, more on them below, and efforts to expand the slave empire even into Mexico and Cuba seem to speak of something other than a tale of hardship. 
The post-1808 spike in prices, however, also greatly incentivized conscious slave breeding. The same clergyman quoted above notes this as well. As it is, slaves are raised here more as a marketable and money-returning commodity than for their productive labor. This, even if some of these latter generation plantation owners sold slaves to cover necessities, many others kept driving their reproduction and selling the offspring purely for profit. Speculative traders flourished in this environment, and it grew into a full Old South phenomenon and even beyond. By 1790, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware were already net exporters, and shortly afterwards, North Carolina and the District of Columbia were added to the heartland of exportation. South Carolina and Kentucky followed in the 1820s, and Georgia and Tennessee in the 1850s, even with Alabama and Missouri coming close. After the War of 1812 ended in 1815, Jackson had cleared Indians out of the Mississippi Territory, which was then divided into the states of Mississippi and Alabama in 1817 and 1819. By the 1820 census, Mississippi already had 32,000 slaves, and Alabama over 47,000 slaves. Slaves made up 33% of the population in the latter and over 43% in the former. With these high figures, planters must have begun to rush in with large number of slaves as early as the territories had opened, a phenomenon rightly termed Alabama fever. With nine out of the first 12 presidents coming from the South, seven from Virginia, the program of expanding western territories to open up new slave markets for the Old South would continue. Indeed, Polk himself, in the 1840s, bought slaves in secret from his office in the White House on an ongoing basis during his presidency in hope of building up a nest egg while he worked to extend the reach of American slavery with the annexation of Texas. With this new paradigm, begun in 1808 and lasting until the Civil War, the elites needed no new importations of Africans. Instead, natural increase provided ample supply. But this was in reality a closed monopoly over persons grown by sexual reproduction, which slave owners encouraged. As much as some Southern representatives would have denied, the pretense of shock defense, any public charges of purposeful slave breeding, evidence of bounds of the practice in various ways and degrees. Indeed, for decades, the entire Southern economy depended upon it, and it lay behind the insatiable Southern lust for expansion of power and territory and the legislation derived from it. Not only did prominent figures such as a Jefferson embrace the practice and speak of it casually in correspondence, some did so in public. In 1853, for example, Thomas R. Dew, who was the president of William and Mary College and a powerful pro-slavery voice, openly stated in his co-authored The Pro-Slavery Argument, 
Virginia is, in fact, a Negro-raising state for other states. She produces enough for her own supply and 6000 for sale. 6000 for sale, that is, every year. Considering how many slaves appeared in the Deep South seemingly overnight, and after the close of the tra- transatlantic trade, you can grasp an idea of the intensity and scope of the domestic traffic. On top of this, planters sold, bought, and relocated an even greater number between locations within each state, driving the total number into the millions. Scholars have known the extent of it since the earliest histories, but the most recent and definitive studies of the domestic trade conclude that around 2 million people suffered this fate. Of the earlier scholars who interviewed many former slaves at the turn of the last century related, I made it my business to inquire of every ex-slave I met to how he or she came south, if not native. In fully four cases out of five, they were brought literally by the traders. Around 875,000 in all were moved south or west, about two-thirds of which were forced marched in roped and neck-chain coffles by professional slave traffickers, the rest by migrant owners themselves. We will discuss the terrible consequences this had for slave families, for example, separating married couples forever in a later chapter. The closing of the Atlantic slave trade did not have the effect the emancipationists and abolitionists had hoped. Slavery was not only practiced as widely and cruelly as ever in the South, it had now begun to spread into a vast new territory. Instead of dwindling away with the importation of Africans, Southerners simply leveraged the domestic slave population to continue the slave trade, and thus slavery, at feverish growth rates. Slavery seemed to grow more firmly entrenched and the power built upon it more powerful. As the slave power expanded, so did the sentiment of those opposed to it. During this time, anti-slavery societies proliferated throughout the South, far outnumbering those in the North. These, however, were often founded by small Quaker remnants, Northern transplants, or a few of the older Methodists and Baptists who still retained their denomination's original anti-slavery stances, now long faded. Such groups in the South though numerous, were small, weak, scattered, and always ineffective. Their very existence, however, attests to the widespread awareness of slavery's continued vigor and the revulsion some felt at the variety of the evils it expressed. Nationally speaking, the single most popular emancipation expression came in the form of the American Colonization Society. Promoted by high-profile leaders and well-funded, in part by public funds from Congress, the society presented a moderate appeal by offering funding to compensate slave owners and for the deportation of emancipated slaves. Founded in 1816, 
the group had secured its own colony, Liberia, by 1821, and it would pick up the tab to send newly freed blacks back to Africa. This offer answered not only the reluctance of slave owners who otherwise would have to pay to deport an emancipated slave out of their state themselves, it also answered the racist fears of nearly all whites, south and north, of adding to the free black population. As a practical and compassionate as the ACS's appeal may have sounded to moderate emancipationists at the time, they simply neglected to account for the core feature of American slavery. Slave owners were not reluctant to emancipate merely because of the expenses of deportation, but because slaves made up the foundation of the entire economy in the South, the base of nearly all Southern capital stock, and the majority of collateral for its credit. Slaves meant revenue and profit, and without them, the entirety of the system would come crashing down. Slaves paid the bills, and with the expanding West and the expanding slave population meant continued income. If owners would emancipate anyone under these circumstances, it would likely only be the most unproductive who added the least to their bottom line. The addition of each baby slave added to their credit supply. The natural increase of slaves was the inflation of the monetary base which fueled economic growth as they saw it. As one Virginia congressman stated during the, that slave's slavery debates in 1832, our slaves constitute the greatest portion of our wealth. And by their value, regulate the price of nearly all the property we possess. The ACS was thus doomed to failure, no matter how much money it could raise with the perennially successful political smile of good intentions, for if nothing else than what actress Fanny Kemble observed during her brief stay on a Georgia plantation in 1838 and 1839, I'll tell you why abolition is impossible, she lamented, because every healthy Negro can fetch a thousand dollars in Charleston at this moment. Later historians have recognized that the ACS did not encourage extensive manumission and made little or no contribution to the solution of the slavery problem. It was rather a false lead which diverted the goodwill of many earnest Christians from more promising solutions. Campbell shared sentiments more radical than mere emancipation. She was an abolitionist. Her lament grew from an understanding of how deeply the curse of slavery actually reached into the core of American life. If the end of slavery faced this reality, no moderate scheme of funding limited deportation would do anything more than compensate savvy owners on calculated margins. Abolitionist Minister Leonard Bacon arrived at the same conclusion in 1834. What is that which, at the present time, stands more than anything else in the way of abolition. It is the domestic slave trade. 
It is the fact that slaves have a market price and can be exchanged for money at the pleasure or necessity of the proprietor. If slavery ever was to come to an end, a more radical approach was necessary. Anti-slavery advocates would need to embrace a sterner and less compromising angle, one that took the axe to the root, called sin, sin, and could not be co-opted as a tool of the evil it desired to eradicate. Two major events occurred in 1831 to create a turning point in antebellum slavery, particularly regarding public sentiment and the reactions to it, but also for the harshness and crassness of its turbulent future. After a brief stint following the ACS, young emancipationist William Lloyd Garrison quickly grew to understand the extent to which the practice and industry of slavery and racism involved the whole nation, and he despised any attempt at piecemeal, gradual emancipation. He became a co-editor of the Baltimore paper Genius of Universal Emancipation and started demanding immediate and total abolition. But within a couple of years, he moved back to Boston to begin publication of The Liberator, which would heighten blood pressures in both North and South until the passage of the 13th Amendment. Garrison's first edition of The Liberator ran on January 1st, 1831, and within a month, the legislature of Georgia offered a $5,000 reward, well over 100000 in today's economy, for anyone who would deliver Garrison to Georgia for trial. But Garrison was already no stranger to controversy or government persecution. His first issue related the proceedings from an earlier lawsuit over one of his Baltimore articles when a ship owner from his hometown was participating in a shipment of slaves from Baltimore to New Orleans. Garrison blasted. It is no worse to fit out piratical cruisers or to engage in the foreign slave trade than to pursue a similar trade along our coasts and the men who have the wickedness to participate therein for the purpose of heaping up wealth should be sentenced to solitary confinement for life. They are the enemies of their own species highway robbers and murderers, and their final doom will be, unless they speedily repent, to occupy the lower depths of perdition. The slavery-friendly jury in Baltimore naturally found Garrison guilty and heaped a great fine upon him. When he could not pay, the court threw him in jail, and he sat there until the wealthy merchant and abolitionist convert Arthur Tappan paid his fine. The Tappan Garrison link reveals something that would probably have greatly disturbed Southern readers, and for which they probably had grown to hate him as much as they already did. Not only did a Tappan mean deep pockets for a voice like the Liberator, but the merchant himself had been converted to immediate abolitionism through the legacy of a group of uncompromising radical free blacks who had assembled in Pennsylvania in 1817. 
This source of activism represented the deepest of nonviolent radicalism in America, but also the one thing that infuriated Southerners, and many Northerners as well, was a free black population demanding equal rights and equal treatment. On top of this, the Philadelphia meeting revealed that the vast majority saw colonization as a racist scheme to strengthen slavery by removing all symbols of black freedom. That abolitionist forces arising from this source now funded the liberation of Garrison's voice and talents and all their fiery radical rage from a southern prison had to have sent waves of indignation in all directions, especially through the South. While the Liberator never had more than a few thousand subscribers, most of whom were free blacks, donors paid to make sure copies made it into the hands of statesmen, judges, and other prominent men. The consistent reaction at the upper levels magnified the paper's influence in society as a whole. Garrison's name was on the lips and in the fears of Southern leaders virtually every day. Immediate, no-compromise abolitionism came throughout the South to be known by the near-swear word, Garrisonianism. More importantly, it was easily believed that the North in general shared Garrison's view, or at least it served the uh, interest of propagandists who wished to demonize the North in general for political reasons. Nat Turner's Rebellion To compound these Southern fears, one of the most notable slave revolts broke out in southeastern Virginia in the fall of the same year. No sooner had Southerners feared that the spread of radical Garrisonian abolition would stoke slave unrest than did the charismatic slave preacher Nat Turner lead one of the largest, if not the largest, slave rebellions in American history, killing about 60 whites in the space of two days. Militias organized to put down the rebellion, but overzealous manhunts continued for several days. Even after they had captured all the conspirators, white vigilantes rounded up countless alleged rebels and in apparent racial revenge decapitated them and placed their heads on poles. In all directions, whites took Negroes from their shacks and tortured, shot, and burned them to death and then mutilated their corpses in ways that witnesses refused to describe. In all, about 120 blacks suffered this torture and execution on top of over 50 formally executed by the state. When Turner himself was finally caught, he suffered the same fate. The turmoil roused the latent desperation in individuals in many ways. Not only did gangs of whites react indiscriminately, blacks themselves despaired and feared. In one case, related by a missionary, a master and slave left together into the woods. The slave reported had been faithful and even served his master's life during the rebellion, but he could no longer live as a slave, not after Nat Turner. He requested his master either free him or shoot him. The master took the gun, in some trepidation, leveled it at the faithful Negro and shot him through the heart. Immediately after Turner's trial, 
a lawyer who interviewed Turner, published a booklet of his confessions. Papers promoted it, and it became a popular piece of discussion during the debates. For starters, some doubted its authenticity because, as one paper put it, it was too eloquent to have come from a black man, giving the bandit a character for intelligence which he does not deserve. The introduction highlighted the fact that Turner had been taught to read and write and engaged in religious meditations without supervision. These, it alleged, not only afforded him the opportunity and the religious motive to develop his plan, but also made him susceptible to nefarious outside influences. The Richmond Inquirer admonished, it ought to teach William Lloyd Garrison and the other fanatics of the North how they meddle with these weak wretches. Garrisonianism alone would have probably sufficed eventually to change the temper of the South, but certainly after Nat Turner, it reacted in utter knee-jerk panic, swiftly moving to an aggressive defensive posture in which they assumed, apparently, the best defense was a good offense. This appeared both in politics and publications. Politically speaking, Virginia erupted with over 40 separate petitions, mostly begging the assembly to get rid of the menace of the black race among them. A small minority, Quakers for example, proposed a general gradual emancipation along with a restoration of the African race to the inalienable rights of man. A fate as hopeless at this point as it was radical. Most called for deportation and colonization. About a third went so far as to demand the deportation of all blacks, slave or free. At least one complained that blacks in general took jobs away from whites, but stopped short of calling for deportation, settling for a law that would ban blacks from all skilled trades. The petitions led to the famous Virginia slavery debates in the General Assembly, 1831 to 1832, in which the state would stamp out the last gasp of emancipationism and pass a new round of additional strictures in its slave code. The governor himself proposed new strictures on slave preaching and assemblies and railed against abolitionist literature, demanding laws to eradicate it. By the time the issue emerged from committee, two resolutions came to the floor, each, oddly enough, proposals for emancipation. Debate ensued, not so much over slavery versus no slavery, but over social costs versus economic costs. While most Virginians agreed that a black population posed dangers, the enslaved portion, most of course, were also a valuable stock of property. James H. Golson, in arguing against emancipation but in favor of deporting free blacks, let slip the financial motive always just beneath the surface for so many. Our slaves constitute nearly all our wealth. It is true, and it is moreover true, that we are in debt, and although either interest or attachment causes us to retain this property in preference to all other, we nevertheless yield it freely to the discharge of our just obligations and always look to it as a capital stock 
either to meet the exigencies of the present or to enable us to provide for the reasonable demands of the future. If by rash or inconsiderate legislation you destroy the value of this property, you leave the county of Brunswick not only poor, but many of its citizens would incur total bankruptcy and ruin. In the end, the governor's points were about the only changes that actually passed, and the volleys over emancipation resulted in only a carefully worded stonewalling of the issue until a more definite development of public opinion that would never come. While some later writers, and some today, interpreted such Virginian discussions of emancipation as showing that Virginians truly wanted to end slavery in general, the context of these petitions and debates makes clear that very few of the efforts had any real concerns for the blacks themselves, their various oppressions or inequities, or the institution of southern slavery. Instead, even those that condemned slavery itself as an injustice nevertheless excused the institution in cases of stern necessity, which nearly every Virginian would have judged their situation to be in light of the intense anti-black racism. Their foremost concerns and the bulk of their arguments always emphasized the degradation of blacks, their incapacity for civilization or improvement, and the alleged dangers they posed to white society, especially once they should outnumber whites, and this was said to be not far away. In one debater's words, Virginians needed only some glimmer of hope for the future that their state would someday find relief from the evils of an overflowing black population. In addition to the political reaction, a tidal wave of pro-slavery literature also began to flood the South. While American defenses of slavery had existed from at least 1701, the events of 1831 catalyzed an unprecedented effusion of print. A quick accounting will convey the point. From a list of 237 pro-slavery works published by Americans, compiled in the most definitive study of the subject, only 14 appeared before 1800, and only 20 more between 1800 and 1831. This means that 203, or 86%, appeared following the advent of Garrisonianism and Nat Turner's Rebellion. Many of these may have resulted from the compounding effects of later national efforts at entrenching the institution in American life, as we shall see, but these efforts themselves could be said to have stemmed from the intensified focus of Southern politicians to produce such a result, including the domination of all branches of the federal government and its policy, and this intensification began at home first. The most immediate outflow of pro-slavery literature did not seem to gain much recognition nationally. In fact, it never did. The extreme offensive defense from Southern leaders, in hindsight, appears to have been aimed at convincing no one but themselves and each other. That being the case, it could be, could be said to have been very successful. 
for the main influence seems only to have been an intensification of belief that emancipation was too dangerous, deportation too expensive, slavery was the only option for blacks, and thus the need for greater controls on slaves at home. States tighten slave codes even more. State laws continue to develop in virtually all the same regards we have seen since the 1600s, sometimes fed by fears growing out of national debates, efforts only intensified after the rise of radical abolitionism and the Nat Turner Rebellion. As difficult as it may be to imagine tightening the slave codes any further in some states, They used every word about emancipation, every move of an abolitionist, or every slight rumor about the next slave revolt to justify increasing the severity of the controls. After rumors spread of a planned slave rebellion in Chatham County, North Carolina, for example, authorities raised a militia for regular slave patrols. One resident, Hiram White, who served on a patrol for two nights, recalled the extent of their powers. Orders were given to search every Negro house for books or prints of any kind, and Bibles and hymn books were particularly mentioned. And should we find any, our orders were to inflict punishment by whipping the slave until he informed who gave them to him or how they came by them. After two nights of this, Mr. White refused to continue in his charge and added that at the time of the rumored plot, the jail was packed with slaves arrested on allegations of involvement. Several suffered lashes and some were tortured with thumbscrews until they confessed. No real evidence of a plot ever surfaced, but on top of the torture, the authorities forbid any further gatherings to worship and forbid all black preachers from any further preaching. Many other measures, however, were more than just incidental. Gun laws increased. The Virginian Code in 1819 said blacks and mixed could not possess any firearms or ammunition unless they worked on a rural frontier plantation and had a special license for which their master had to apply. Conservatives today think concealed carry permits are marks of freedom in exercising our rights. They are little more than the tyranny and control measures conservatives of the past imposed on their slaves. Offending slaves had to forfeit their weapons to the ownership and the use of any informant. The state repealed even these slim expectations in its revision of 1831 and 32. After this, slaves could no longer possess firearms at all or else risk forfeiture of the weapon and up to 39 lashes. Later would arise the so-called one-drop rule in which folks with any African ancestor in their lineage at all were considered Negro and subject to segregation laws. The seeds of this thinking had already sprouted at least as early as Virginia's 1819 code revision. Anyone with one black grandparent, one quarter African, 
even if otherwise white, was not legally white, but mulatto, as subject to all the slave codes affecting that classification. Other states employed similar rules. As in former days, slaves could not congregate and could not visit anywhere over four hours without written permission from their owner. The revised law specified this to prevent the inconveniences arising from the meetings of slaves. This included any educational assembly, since either meeting at religious services after sundown or teaching them reading or writing during either day or night may be productive of considerable evil to the community, the assembly empowered officers of the counties to enter such houses, arrest offenders, and subject them to corporal punishment. These officers could summon any person to aid them in any such endeavor, and if that person refused, subject them to fines. Further, any speech given by a slave and deemed sedition could earn him or her up to 30 lashes as well. Whereas in former versions of the code, blacks could not raise a hand against any white without punishment, now they could also not use abusive and provoking language toward them either, upon penalty of up to 30 lashes. Whereas the law had for some time prevented slaves from practicing any medicine by 1819, any black or mixed, slave or free, who would prepare, exhibit, or administer any medicine whatsoever shall be judged guilty of felony and suffer death. Virginians feared attempt to help slaves escape so much that they imposed stiff jail sentences and heavy fines for anyone stealing or conveying a slave away. The law went so far as to stipulate that all masters of vessels bore criminal responsibility, even for stowaways. Just to make sure, the law also specified the slave status as chattel explicitly. All Negro and mulatto slaves in all courts of judicature within this commonwealth shall be held, taken, and adjudged to be personal estate. Any freed slave must carry his papers of emancipation when traveling outside the county of his residence or else could be jailed until someone produced the papers for him and paid his jail fees. On top of this, any such emancipated slave had 12 months to leave the state or else suffer re-enslavement. With an increase of anti-slavery literature circulating, Laws against teaching slaves to read or write took on a new intensity across the South. Writing had, of course, been forbidden to slaves in some places for quite some time already. For example, South Carolina had forbidden the teaching of writing to slaves in 1740, citing great inconveniences and levying the intimidating sum of 100 pounds for anyone doing so. By 1800, the same state outlawed any mental instruction of blacks or mixed and empowered magistrates to disperse such meetings, breaking down doors if necessary, and to inflict lashes as they judged necessary. 
the city of Savannah initiated its own law in 1818 that any person that teaches any person of color, slave or free, to read or write or causes such persons to be so taught is subjected to a fine of $30 for each offense and every person of color who shall keep a school to teach reading or writing is subject to a fine of $30 or to be imprisoned 10 days and whipped 39 lashes. The state of Georgia finally caught up in 1829, imposing a statewide fine of $500. North Carolina concurred in 1831, citing the danger that teaching slaves to read and write tends to dissatisfaction in their minds and to produce insurrection. Alabama also instated similar fines and penalties for this offense in the same year. Louisiana stood out to such an extreme that it shocked at least one prominent legal commentator of the day. Quote, In Louisiana, the law on this subject is armed with tenfold severity, It not only forbids any person teaching slaves to read or write, but it declares that any person using language in any public discourse from the bar, bench, stage, or pulpit, or in any other place, or in any private conversation, or making use of any signs or actions, having a tendency to produce discontent among the free colored population, or insubordination among the slaves, who shall be knowingly instrumental in bringing into the state any paper, book, or pamphlet, having the like tendency, shall, on conviction, be punishable with imprisonment or death at the discretion of the court. Soon, however, other states approached this much as well. After Nat Turner, the Virginia Assembly forbade any literature that allegedly promoted insurrection or rebellion among slaves. Should a white violate this law, they could be fined up to $1,000. A black would be whipped on the first offense and executed on the second. Even more, the state extended the law against seditious speech by slaves to include any free, black, or mixed, again, meaning even people who had little as a quarter African as well. Further, any consultation or advisement from any free person that the state deemed would induce, entice, or incite slaves to rebel could bring that person under a law that wielded the death penalty. In all practicality, these rules meant that the state either forbade or highly discouraged most public speech against the institution of slavery already in 1819, but certainly after 1832. During the Virginia slavery debates, one slave owner, for the safety of the republic, voiced his disapproval of grinding the slaves further into suppressed ignorance believing they would eventually all revolt and cause a race war, a highly held sentiment. In his argument, he revealed the extent to which the state had already gone and to which it would probably go further in prohibiting their education. Sir, we have, as far as possible, closed every avenue by which light may enter their minds. 
if we could extinguish the capacity to see light, our work would be completed. They would then be on the level with the beasts of the field, and we would be safe. I am not certain that we would not do it if we could find the process and on the plea of necessity. The education and speech prohibited indeed determined to go further yet to erase any possible ambiguity or misunderstanding about seditious speech. The state clarified the code in 1836. Any member of an abolition or anti-slavery society or agent of an abolition or anti-slavery society who shall come into this state and shall here maintain by speaking or writing that the owners of slaves have no property in the same or advocate or advise the abolition of slavery shall be deemed guilty of a high misdemeanor and on conviction thereof shall be fined in sum of not less than $50 nor more than $200 and shall suffer a term of imprisonment of not less than six months nor more than three years at the discretion of a jury. The same act held postmasters responsible for discovering abolitionist or anti-slavery literature in the mail and to deliver it to a justice of the peace, whom it required to launch an inquiry into the person receiving it and to burn the material in his presence. Anyone caught subscribing to such literature could suffer fines and imprisonment. As usual, later revisions to the code increased penalties. In 1860, although jail sentences were capped at one year, fines were raised as high as $500. This for merely saying out loud or in print that owners had no right to property in slaves or that slavery ought to be abolished. When the issue arose at the federal level in 1835, John Calhoun made clear the Southern motivation of pure censorship. He revealed to the Senate that the South feared agitation in the public forum because it would compel the Southern press to discuss the question in the presence of slaves who were induced to believe that there was a powerful party at the North ready to assist them and that the belief that they had friends would encourage them to rebel. Conclusion Through the first half of the antebellum era, the slave power grew and expanded into new territory almost unimpeded, with only a brief political check coming with the national question of the addition of Missouri in 1820, as we shall see. Even with the federal closing of the Atlantic slave trade, was either welcomed or easily adapted to by the slave breeding industry, which grew so large and powerful in such a short time that the Missouri question created only a brief speed bump. Larger impediments, however, lay ahead. The turning point would only come with the seemingly insane courage of a fearless minority of radicals. Tiny at first, and rightly or wrongly, these forces initiated the type of uncompromising stance against slavery and racism that would make the issue one of liberty or death. Radical preachers in the North, Garrison and the Abolitionists, and a radical preacher in the South, Turner, 
set a precedent which the forces of freedom must no longer rest content with moderate measures that left most slaves as slaves for life and blacks treated as beasts, but must call the hand of the slave power and force it to stand the test of equal and ultimate justice. Even this appeal to heaven would still take long, hard years before bearing even some of the intended fruit, but the process had at least begun on the proper terms. How the conflict grew from local to national and even attempted international venues and finally to a climax is the subject of the next chapter. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.